0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We're going to get back into our series in Colossians. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 3. We're going to get after it this morning, Colossians chapter 3. You know, it's clear that in the early church, as revealed in early Christian literature, they took seriously the necessity of Christianly living in the place where one is really his or her true self. We, we call it our, our private and personal lives, where we really are who we really are. This private or personal life is a variety of different spaces. It could be work, it could be hobbies, it could be places where we play, but for most of us, our private and personal space is in our home, and, and so it's within the home that the early Christians really did believe that one's truest self is revealed there, and I think it's true today, and if you doubt that, ask a three-year-old, right, right? Deborah Garcia teaches Ian, uh, his small group, on Sunday mornings during Kids Connect, this service. A couple of weeks ago, she sent me a text informing me that she was helping Ian to the potty. And he's learning how to potty and potty well. And she learned several things about his daddy's potty habits. (laughs) Now, first off, I was not aware that I had potty habits. Second off, I don't know why my potty habits are of anybody's concern, including my three-year-olds or Deborah Garcia's. But I was reminded that we are our truest self in our private spaces and in our homes. See, the way it works is you can come and you can put on spiritual cosmetics and you can sit there with your spouse if you have a spouse and everybody can look and think, man, they're just a perfect married couple, but you could be an incredibly unhealthy marriage. Parents can sit here and this father who is very verbally or emotionally abusive to his children can can be seen as this great dad because we see how he loves on his son or his daughter as... They're here. We can come to this place with all kinds of secret sin in our lives and no one ever knows we have it because we sit here and we look as though we have it together. And so it makes sense that the earliest Christians believed, as so clearly my three-year-old, that we are truly who we are in the private spaces and in the personal places. We are truly who we are in our home. Each week I stand up here and I teach. And people ask me if I still get nervous. And the answer is absolutely. I've done this for 11 years and I still get nervous. One of my old Bible professors in my undergrad, he once told me that if I ever, for, if I ever get to a place where I'm no longer nervous before I preach, I've forgotten what it is I'm doing. And that has stuck with me. Because I stand here before you as though I have something to say, but really I have nothing much to say other than what i chew on with the word of god myself and so i stand up here and i stand here to the best of my ability and offer something try to offer something from god's word and i've prayed and i've prepared and i've planned and i've meditated upon the text but above all what i've had to do more than anything is wrestle with the text myself more than praying more than planning more than preparing i've had to ask myself am i living the text Because if I'm going to stand here and preach the text, then I've got to be very honest with whether or not I'm living the text. Because if I'm not living the text, I can't stand here and preach it as though I am. And so it matters to me, and it matters to my family, it matters greatly, but above all, I think it matters to the Lord that I stand here before you, always aware that I am struggling to live the text myself. Because when I ask that question, self-deception becomes tricky. Because I can deceive myself into believing that I'm living the text when I'm not. I can think I'm doing okay, but I may not be. But I want to believe I am, because after all, who likes to be wrong? But the truth of the matter is, I'm wrestling with the text, too. And you don't know whether or not I'm living the text. Because I'm like you. You don't really know. Some of you may know, because you know me well. And some of you in my Life Connections group may know, maybe more than others. But really, as I stand here and deliver the word of God, there's nothing really for you to filter. You may think on this or you may think on that, but I have to wrestle with the text to myself if I'm going to have the audacity to preach it. Now, this is where my beautiful wife comes into play. Because you may not know if I'm living the text, but Allison does. And she is quick, and I'm grateful, to in her own way and in her own time remind me that I need to practice what I preach and preach what I practice. So, I am who I am in the personal space, in the private place, in my life. And so are you. My wife sees me with clarity, but God, above all, sees me with crystal clarity, as he does you. So it makes sense as Paul is preaching via a letter to the Colossian Christians that he would not stop at verse 17 and that he would move into our text this morning, verse 18. He's already been all up in our business, and now he's about to get into our home. He's about to tell us how to love our wives and our kids, how to be the kind of employee and employer that we're called to be. And so I want to look closely because I want to catch the context because the context makes sense. And we've got to keep that in mind. So you look at verse 10 of chapter 3. And Paul says something quite remarkable. He says, you've put on the new man who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of his creator. So, so virtue, by virtue of our baptism, we put on the new man. We become new creatures. And so our, our minds are being renewed. We're starting to learn how to see the world a different way. If you became a Christian at the age of 54, you've got 53 years of unteaching for God to do so that you can see the world the way God wants you to see it. So our knowledge is being renewed, but not according to politics or culture. Not according to my mom and dad, not according to my grandparents, not according to the self-help book I read, but according to the image of the creator and that image of the invisible God is Jesus Christ himself. So God is renewing my mind according to the way and the life and the likeness of Jesus. And so it makes sense that in this chapter 3, verse 17 verses, Paul would have the audacity to remind us of who we are in Christ. And we've got to move through this to get to verse 18. So verse 5, he reminds us that sex outside the covenant of marriage is a sin and no longer should be a part of our lives, if we claim to be Christ followers. Purity should be our aim. He says that we're, we're letting go of godless desires and so those desires do not bring God glory or honor him as holy. So, so then he talks about greed and he, and he says our passions and our wants should be in check. and no longer be greedy that consequently then we've come to know that God is, is supreme and that he is more valuable than anything else so there really is no room for idolatry in our lives any longer. And then you get to verse 9 and he says that we've put away the other sins such as moving away from living lives of anger and wrath and malice and what else he say slander and gossip and filthy language and lying and he's saying basically that, that you're in Christ you should be moving away from these things these things should not be a part of your life so the way you think should be changed so that the way you see will be changed and so that the way you act and live will be changed and so he moves on to verse 12 and he calls the church to be a compassionate people because of all these things We have been renewed in Jesus. Jesus is compassionate. He calls us to be compassionate like Jesus. And so we are putting away our list of sins and our signs of judgment and unthoughtful labels that we apply to people because we're relationally lazy and we choose a label instead. And, and so we, we do that. He says, I want you to put that away. And he says, I wanted you to be God's thankful people, meaning his church and his community that, that deals out love, who are instruments of peace, who, who pursue uh, justice on all levels and who seek mercy. Where God's word, look at the text, verse 12 through 16, where God's word richly dwells as we teach and admonish one another through the word and in all wisdom. And we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And, and in the name of Jesus Christ, we do it all by his authority. And for his glory, and we give thanks to God the Father. And so, Paul is, is already all up in our faces and our grills, waiting to just come into now our personal lives. He's talked to us as a church, as a community, and now he wants to talk to us as, as people who live in homes. And so, we get to our text the nerve of Paul, right? Wives, verse 18. Be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them or act harshly toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Or do not arouse your children or provoke your children so that you won't break their spirit. Verse 22, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically. Something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you'll receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, Supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. This is a dizzying text. It doesn't have any flow. It's just like principle after principle after principle. Sure, it deals with this idea of personal and private space, Husband to wife, wife to husband, parent to child, child to parent, employer to employee or slave to, 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 to master, master to slave, however you want a contemporary, temporarily look at that and, and unfortunately we won't get there this week, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But he gets into our lives and so no matter whether you're married or whether you're single or whether you have been married or whether you're divorced or widowed or whether you have children or no children or, or whether you have a job or no job, this text applies because it fits into every nick and cranny of our lives because Paul has the nerve to come out of verse 17 in the first 17 verses and get all into our private space. And see, here's the underlying truth of this very dizzying text. Jesus is either Lord of your whole life or He is not Lord of anything at all. That's the dizzying truth of this text. He is either Lord of it all, your language, your hobbies and habits, practices, relationships, with spouses, with people you date, with friends, with children, with employers, with coworkers brothers and sisters in Christ with your neighbors. He's either Lord of my life or he is not Lord of anything at all. And I think Paul's reason for this is sort of found in verse 23 through 24. Look at it here. He says, whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. He says, you serve the Lord Christ. Two words used together back to back with intentionality. And I'm wondering, why Paul, why Paul didn't say Lord Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus or just Christ. No, he said Lord Christ, two of the heaviest words in our faith. Lord, King of the universe and maker of all. Lord, Christ, promised Messiah as revealed in Old Testament scriptures, who now has established the kingdom of God. And made it present among us. You serve the Lord King. That's weighty and heavy. And perhaps Paul's trying to prove a point that Jesus is not a buffet savior or convenience store king. His teaching cannot be picked and chosen. You and I either have to wrestle with all that he is and with all that he teaches or we wrestle with none at all. That's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth even of this text. I cannot take a little grace here with a little side of mercy, but ask him to hold off on telling me I can't condone or participate in sexual immorality. That's not the way this works. And the beauty of Jesus is that he's too good and too precious and too holy and too gracious for it to be that simple. He will not fit in my preferences and my politics and my cultural understandings. He will, he will fit in his kingdom and we will fit inside of him. It's not the other way around. And so he will not settle for just being a savior. He wants to be Lord. He will push and he will prod and he will discipline and he will prune and he will do what he needs to do so that he can become Lord of all that we are. Lord of our marriages, of our relationships with all people in our lives. Lord of how we work and how well we work and what kind of effort we give into our work, whether I like my job or not. And all of those different things. I think Paul is basically just driving the point again that anything without Christ is nothing anything with Christ is everything. And so Paul says, whatever you do. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do. Whatever, whatever you do. Whatever you do. Like, I, I, whatever you do. Doesn't matter, whatever, whatever. I love that. Whatever you do. Like, it's pretty self-explanatory, right? Whatever you do. Pretty much covers it all, whether I find it unimportant or important or trivial or urgent in every season of my life, in every space of my life, whether I'm single, dating, married, playing in sports, recreation league, or for crying out loud, even brushing my hair. See, the truth of it is, I I brush my hair pretty enthusiastically because 10 years from now, I'm not going to have any to brush. And, and, And this is exactly, Paul said, whatever you do, you can't trivialize this. You can't read into it. Whatever you do, whatever you do. You can't say, well, he doesn't care. Whatever you do. Do it as if you do it for the Lord. See, the elders don't have to call and check on my hours. They don't. I don't have a time clock. And believe it or not, I work more than one day a week. I work two Because whatever I do, I do enthusiastically as if I'm doing it for the Lord. I don't, I don't serve simply you or simply the elders. You don't serve simply your boss. I have a part-time job. I don't work just for my boss. I work as if I work for the Lord. And so he says, whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. If you want to see enthusiasm, watch my wife watch Auburn football. You will see enthusiasm at its finest. It is a beautiful and somewhat scary sight. It's a lot of fun. Watch my son scream at the television as he yells at the refs. Enthusiasm is not something we lack in our home. And it can mean a lot of things, especially in our society. In a dictionary, it simply means absorbing or controlling possession of the mind by any interest or pursuit. People say to me, believe it or not, that I'm an enthusiastic person. That's not the kind of enthusiasm Paul is talking about. Simply because I'm enthusiastic when I speak or when I relate. See what Paul means, the Greek word here for enthusiasm is suke, And the Greek word suke is translated in the New Testament for soul. And soul literally means the breath of life. And so when Paul says do whatever you do enthusiastically, he's saying I want you to do it from the breath of life. I want you to do it from the soul. In other words, I want you to do it with a whole sense of passion. I don't want you to half do something. I want you to do it from the very bottom pit of who you are. Whatever you do, do it as if you're doing it for the Lord and not for men. Do it with your whole being. Give it your all. The truth of it is Christians really should be the most passionate people on the planet. And when I say that, I don't mean that everybody starts hooping and hollering. We all show our passions differently. Allison and I are very different. She's a more introvert, I'm more extrovert, but less extrovert than you probably realize. And, and I'll stand up and I, I'm I can I'm comfortable to some degree in these spaces. But my beautiful wife, she she's a passionate woman, but she's not going to go up there and give you high fives and chest bumps after a, a worship song. Or a good or a good and I'm not either, but but some of you will. I, I love that about some of you. You need to high-five the brother behind you. That was a great song. That's not the kind of passion, though. That's a display of passion. Passion is a, is a living from the soul and giving it your all. It's deeper than just the appearance. And see, this changes everything. Because he says you do it as if you do it for the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying. Whatever we do in our lives... We do it understanding that it is worship before God. See, this is the problem. We have reduced worship. And we have a bad theology of worship sometimes. Worship has been reduced to an act or five acts that we do on a Sunday in a particular place at a particular time. And for some of us, that's the way we talk about worship. And that is theologically incorrect. If for no other reason, this verse. Worship is not something I simply do or an experience. Worship is a life given to God. Because whatever I do, I'm doing as if I'm doing it for the Lord. See, here's the beauty of this. In your new birth, when you became a child of God, you were given God's Holy Spirit. The Bible says that makes you the temple of God. That means you have been made holy now by the blood of Jesus. And now God calls you to learn how to live a holy life. And so, when, here's how you make sense of it. Nothing in your life as a Christian is secular. Everything is sacred. Because you yourself are sacred. So everything in your life is worship. And I had somebody once ask me, a relative actually, so do you mean that brushing your teeth is an act of worship before God? So I ignored the insincerity of the question. And I answered it. And I answered it this way. Who gave you those teeth? God. God. Who gave you the arms and the fingers and the hands to brush those teeth? God. Who gave you the money to buy the toothpaste and the toothbrush, the breath to wake up and brush those teeth? God. Do that with that in mind, and you will be brushing your teeth to the glory of God. Because it's an issue of thankfulness. It's an issue of understanding and recognition that whatever I do, I do for the Lord because all things come from him in my life. And so I think what Paul does is he gives four motivating reminders. And I think this is, this is it. Because he's elevating life to its highest view. See, for the Christian, the Christian has the highest view of life because we understand all of life for the Christian to be worship. So we, have the high, we view life higher than anyone else. And he says, so if you know who you are and whose you are, And what your inheritance is and where it comes from, you will be a thankful, passionate person. But any time that I start forgetting who I am in Christ, the identity I've been given, whose I am, for he has called me his child. The king of kings has called me his child. And then not only that, he's given me an inheritance. It's already waiting for me. And it's an inheritance of glory, which is life lived in his full presence forever, away from all the brokenness of this mess and that he holds it and i don't have to worry about losing it i don't have to fear that i will become a thankful and passionate person because everything becomes gift of grace and whatever i do whatever i do whatever i end up doing for the lord my happenings my hobbies my habits become transformed and renewed even things that culture brings see when it comes to culture we have three options all the time if culture brings something into my life I can choose whether or not I receive it if it honors God I receive it and I do it for the glory of God if culture brings something into my life and it is off of God's path of truth then I can choose to redeem it and so I take it I own it I redeem it and turn it to the glory of God If culture brings me something that is just anti God, then I simply reject it. And I do that to the glory of God. Whatever you do, you do for the glory of God because your life is God's and it's worship. It elevates everything and it changes how I love my wife, I love my child, it changes how I love you, it changes how I talk with you. Sure, I fail, but it calls me to repentance and conviction, it changes how I work. It changes how I work in ministry. It changes how I work in a part-time job. It changes everything because I do it for the Lord and not for men. So then Paul begins to deal with us, helps us understand that we should have the highest view of life, that life is worship. Whatever I do, I do for him. And so he says in verse 18 and 19, wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh or bitter toward them. Now the word submit is hypotasso. It occurs 38 times in the New Testament. Now I realize that the word submit in verse 18 is something that makes people cringe I think there are several reasons for that, which we won't take time to deal with here. We will later. But I want to show you something in 1 Corinthians 16. It's on the screen here. Verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you then, brothers and sisters, to submit, hypotasso, to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. The word submit here is the same word as submit in Colossians 3.18. And see, what has happened is we have become biblically lazy. And we have interpreted Bible words and Bible teachings through the lens of culture. And we, we have ascribed meanings to words that do not have a root in Scripture And we've heard preachers preach it and sometimes these preachers in their most well-meaning places and their lack of detailed study can be wrong and miss the context. 38 times this word is used in the form of all relationships. Wives to husbands, young men to elders and Peter, Christian to Christian, citizen to government. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that women are to be treated with some inferiority as if they're second-class citizens in a doormat who are commanded to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen all their life. That's unbiblical. Regardless of whose parents or grandparents live that way. That's not fitting in the Lord. The idea of submission is that wives should live with a cooperative demeanor that puts others first. Cooperative demeanor that puts others first cooperative demeanor that puts others first. Now, I, I want to let Peter, who was married and an apostle, say something about this himself. Same Holy Spirit. He said in First Peter 3, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the Christian message, because some will, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Your beauty, there's teenagers, listen. Please, your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very valuable in God's eyes. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord with a lower case L. You have become her children when you do what is good and are not frightened by anything alarming. Husbands, you're not off the hook. The verse didn't stop there. In the same way, in the same way, same way, Fred, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature. Yet showing them honor, Fred, As co-heirs, not subservient heirs, co-heirs of the grace of life. Listen to this. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Men, you're not going to have prayers heard clearly by God if you're loving your wife as some subservient woman and treating her like a second-class citizen. Your prayers will be hindered. We cannot treat our wives as though they are not co-heirs of the kingdom and expect God to hear our prayers. And it makes sense to me because God gave us Jesus. (laughs) There's nothing I deserve from God and he gives it to me in grace and loves me despite myself. And then I think he just says to me, Fred, just love how I love. It changes everything. The idea is that neither a husband or wife are allowed by Christ to be arrogant or domineering. The wife isn't allowed to be arrogant or domineering, and the man's not allowed to be arrogant or domineering, not according to the scripture. The idea is that the wife should live with the husband in such a way as to elicit kindness from the husband. Submission and cooperative demeanor that puts it first. The husband should live in such a way as to elicit cooperation from the wife as he is called to lead his family. I do believe that God calls men to lead their families. But men, we are not going to lead our families through dominance and through authority simply because we are a man. That is not biblical. And, men, I say this with all sincerity, but it is not our divine right to come home, put on our v neck t shirts, tuck it into our sweatpants, sit on our couch, and demand that our woman have our dinner ready for us. That is not our divine right. Not according to this scripture. And see, what we have to decide is whether or not we're going to live according to the culture, according to the kingdom. And some of you may think, and and I've made my peace with this 11 years ago. I'm some little flaming liberal progressive preaching some sort of agenda. I'm here to tell you, all sincerity, ask my wife how I lead my family. I am not interested in politics in that way. I'm only interested in the kingdom and us looking like people of the kingdom, including my family and myself. And if you, if, you, if you struggle with that, then I, I beg you, have a Bible study with me. Bible to Bible. Not, not grandparent philosophy to grandparent philosophy. Bible to Bible. And let's figure this out together. As co-heirs of the kingdom, man. That's what what the Bible says. With genuine love and dignity and honor and respect, which is how Christ treats his church, which makes sense. Christ treats us with dignity, honor, and respect. Despite our brokenness, he calls us to do the same. Jesus did not come in the flesh and demand that everybody obey him, did he? He served. He lived in humility and served. And women and children flocked to him. Because of his gentleness, and, his, and he saw the dignity and worth in women. In Jesus' day, women were second-class citizens, if not worse, and so were children. They were doormats. And Jesus came and elevated their dignity and worth. And he loved them with honor and respect, which is why Jesus had the following of women and children that he did. And interestingly enough, he calls us to follow Jesus. See, I will lead my family when I follow Jesus and they begin to follow me as I follow Jesus. The same Paul, he said in Galatians 3, 28, for as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yes, there is biblical equality in the worth and dignity of women. Role and function, May be different and is different, but dignity and worth is in Christ, and it's beautiful and it's glorious. And they are co of the kingdom, men. If we want our wives to live cooperatively with us under our leadership, attitude reflects leadership. We have to love them like Jesus loves. And that means treat them as the Bible teaches, not harshly. Not arrogantly, not bitterly. Look at, look at Ephesians 3 or Colossians 3 verse 19. Not with bitterness or harshness. When you discover as you're treating, as I'm treating my wife as a co-heir of the kingdom of God, and I'm treating her with genuine love and respect and dignity and honor, and I discover that she doesn't have the pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps mentality that I do, or I find that she's more emotional or more sensitive than me, or I find that she's more imperfect or she is imperfect, I shouldn't be surprised and have no divine right to treat her with arrogance or dominance or treat her bitterly or treat her with harshness. Instead, I'm to love her with gentleness, and I'm to love her with honor and respect as a co-heir of the kingdom and peter that's probably what peter was getting at in his text when he said that women are of the weaker nature that they're the weaker ones he wasn't saying that they're incapable of strength he is simply saying i think there is a sensitivity and emotional level there that is beyond what we can even fathom and so we still show them honors as co-heirs of the grace especially if we want to have a communication relationship with god now women if i may say a few things without you wanting a public stoning afterwards First off, I am sorry that we men have treated you like second-class citizens and failed to live into the biblical ideal of marriage and manhood for so many years. I mean that. But I say this with all sincerity. We husbands are not going to be better men if you seek to dominate us or loudly persuade us to be better men. We are not going to become better men with domestic blackmail. And you know what I mean. I will if you. That is not biblical and that is wrong too. You cannot push us or prod us or loudly scream at us to be better or more godly men or better leaders in our homes. That is not biblical. That is why Peter said, with gentleness. Lead with gentleness. They may be won over without a message, but by observing your gentleness, your Purity, your reverence, your submissive heart. Many men in kingdoms and empires in history have fallen by the gentle whisper of a woman and have risen through the gentle whisper of a woman. You have an unimaginable power that I cannot comprehend. With gentleness. With reverence. Yes. With a cooperative, submissive demeanor. Yes. As men, as we men, love you with honor and dignity as a co-heir of the kingdom. And we do not treat you harshly or bitterly. I do not know how to say this other than this way. but if you are living the opposite of this text, repent and love well. When men and women live into these kingdom guidelines, they'll be truly free in their marriage. If you're not married, if you're not married at all, find someone who will live into this. And you live into this. We've got to decide that we're not going to live according to a cultural or political framework. We've got to decide whether or not we're going to live into a kingdom framework. So Paul goes on. And he says, children, obey your parents in everything, verse 20. For this pleases the Lord. Obey your parents. It's pretty simple. The things that you don't want them to do, the things that you think are wrong, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And this verse has been used as a hammer to children for years, and it says what it says and means what it means, but I think there's something even more remarkable in the text. The very fact that Paul decides to give children rights and responsibilities is pretty remarkable in this culture in his biblical culture, and even in our culture. Children matter so much to the Holy Spirit that he decided to give them a line item, give them a principle, and not just tell them to obey their parents, but he commanded fathers. I don't know why he didn't speak to mothers. He didn't. We got to deal with the text. He commanded me as a dad, those of us who are fathers, to not exasperate our children. He gave the children rights so that they won't become discouraged. Fathers exasperate their children when they try to replicate themselves in their children. That's what psychologists say, and frankly, that's the point of the biblical text. Psychologists even say that fathers do that out of insecurity. The fact is, I played baseball and wrestled and played soccer in high school. Ian may not play any. If I want to exasperate him and possibly break his spirit or discourage him or dispirit him, then I will force him to play baseball, wrestling, or soccer. And I will say it's all for his good and blah, 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 team. And or I will let him be who he is and raise him accordingly in Jesus. Ian has a better chance of being struck by lightning while being hit by a shark than becoming a professional baseball player. And he's a lefty. That increases his chances just a bit. <laughs> See, the fact is, children need discipline, and so do parents. Paul is addressing both. We've got to stop overacting the culture. See, the truth of it is, too, is that, that you, can, you can fear. You can place fear in the heart of a three-year-old and, and force him through fear to obey you. I, you can do that. I can do that. I'm bigger than him. I'm his dad. I have a deeper voice. But I have heard that he'll eventually become a teenager, and fear motivations will not work. But see, this makes sense to me because God doesn't treat us that way. See, God could motivate us with fear. Preachers do it all the time and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or you will go to hell. Give your life to Jesus or you will go to hell. All true. All true. And we can think that's the motivating factor. And for some of us, it's fire insurance. And so we give our lives to Jesus so we don't go to hell. But eventually the fear of that or the concern of that wanes and so then does our obedience. See, God doesn't motivate us through fear. He motivates us through love. And so maybe what God wants is fathers to motivate their children through love, through Christ-like humble love, through gentle love, not through fear, not because I'm your daddy, not because I can take but through love. Don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't stir them up. Don't arouse them or they will become discouraged. If you have been that dad, you can repent and make it right. Start loving the right way. the Holy Spirit of God's in you, He can make that happen. He can bring that healing and that wholeness there. A parent who motivates their child by fear may indeed produce an obedient child. But look at the rest of the text. It will not please the Lord. See, Paul even tried to motivate the Colossian Christians by spending the first three chapters of this letter reminding us of who we are before he told us what we should do. We need to remind our children of who they are before we expect them to do anything. Motivate them with love. Motivate them with the gospel. I haven't been a parent long enough to teach anything really about what it means to be a parent, but all that I've said here I think I've just gotten from this text. The rest of you experts can take it from there. But I do know that children need discipline and so do parents. We have a God who is holy and who is perfect. He spoke this world into existence, He holds it together in His hands. He could kill all of us right now if He chose, or He could give us life if He chooses. He could turn these chairs into humans if He chose. He can make bushes burn and He can make floods come through a world that's never seen rain. He can tear down walls at the sound of a trumpet. and He can raise the dead through the power of His Spirit. And yet this same Almighty God looks on us with mercy and with grace and a gentle and honorable love and sees the dignity and beauty of who we are we should simply love that way we should love our wives that way men wives should love their husbands that way we should love our children that way and if you're not married if you're dating if you're used to be married you should love that way because that's the bible And we live by this. We live by the kingdom of God. Not by the culture of men. If I remember who I am. Whose I am. What I have been given and what is expected for me to receive in Christ. And where it comes from. I will live a passionate and thankful life. If you need hope, if you need help. We are all an imperfect people learning what it means to love. If your marriage has been weak or unhealthy and you need prayer, then come and get prayer. If you feel as though you haven't been the parent you need to be, there is grace there. Come and just get prayer. The Holy Spirit lives in you if you are God's child and you can love and live the way he's called you to love and live. There is no doubt and he can bring healing and restoration and hope right where you are. The beautiful thing about God, and please listen, nothing in the life of a Christian is irredeemable. There is nothing you can do in Christ that cannot be redeemed. If you feel you haven't loved well, it can be redeemed. Let's pray for that, if we need to pray for that. Pray for redemption. And then obey the Lord and watch redemption unfold in whatever relationship you feel the weight from.